0: Bibles of Hebrews chapter 13, if you're using one of the blue Q Bibles, it's on page 1009. This morning we will look at two verses in Hebrews 13 as we near the end of this series through the letter to the Hebrews, hearing God's word from Hebrews 13 verses 5 and 6. But before we hear God's word, let us once again ask our God for his help as we hear his word. So please pray with me. Father, you have said, stand by the roads and look and ask for the ancient paths where the good way is and walk in it and find rest for your soul. So Father, we ask that by your Spirit, you would lead us to walk again along the ancient paths of your word. For well, we know that is where the way is good. And it is where we will find rest. So be with us now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Brothers and sisters, hear the word of the Lord to you this morning from Hebrews chapter 13. Verses five and six Keep your life free from love of money and be content with what you have, for he has said I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say The Lord is my helper, I will not fear what can man? Do to me. This is the holy, inerrant, authoritative, and sufficient word of God, and we give him thanks for it. The world is in the midst of a universal epidemic, and at this point, every human on the planet has been infected. Now, the disease is not found in any organ or system of human anatomy, and no earthly cure has ever been successful against it, although many have been tried. This is because it is a disease of the soul. It infects your will, your affections, and your thoughts. The disease is commonly called discontent now if you're not convinced that you suffer from this disease I do have an at-home test that is 100% accurate what I want you to do is take two fingers pointer middle finger place it either on your wrist or on your neck I want you to feel for a pulse If you do not feel a pulse, then you might want to step out and call 911. Something is wrong. But even if you do feel a pulse, I have bad news for you, for something is still wrong. It means you have been infected. For this disease is hereditary. It is contracted at conception, even though it may take some time for symptoms to manifest. And unfortunately, there is no such thing as natural immunity because it is a disease of your very nature. But there is hope. For even though there is no earthly cure, there is a heavenly cure. The cure is contentment. And so we read in verse 5 the command, be content with what you have the contented soul is the healthy soul it is also as i will try to persuade you of this morning the happiest of souls contentment is the third pleasing sacrifice of acceptable worship under the new covenant for remember if you been here at Good Shepherd, working through Hebrews with me, that Hebrews chapter 13 is answering, what does acceptable worship, using that phrase you find at the end of chapter 12, what does acceptable worship look like now that Jesus has come and inaugurated the new covenant? And if sacrifices for pardon have been done away with in christ what are the sacrifices of praise which please god and we are to offer again using phrase that you find later in chapter 13 and so the first two answers that we found in chapter 13 are brotherly love acceptable worship looks like brotherly love in verse 1 Acceptable worship looks like sexual purities, you see in verse 4. And the third pleasing sacrifice of acceptable worship that we find in verse 5 is divine contentment. So this morning, we will consider the natures of contentment and discontent, the conditions of contentment and discontent, and the source of contentment. Now, I know there's many other questions, there are many other applications that I need to address in dealing with contentment, for which I won't have time this morning. So I would recommend to you perhaps the most helpful book that I've read on contentment, which if you know me, you know, will be a very old book. I don't think new books are very good. But there's a very old book called The Art of Divine Contentment by Thomas Watson that has been very helpful for me. And my hope this morning is that you would more earnestly desire contentment and more eagerly pursue it. So first then, let's consider the natures of contentment and discontent. What are they? Well, to be discontent, to Put it very simply, is to be dissatisfied at all times. You're never happy. It's like drinking and always being thirsty, eating and still always being hungry. It's to have the object of your desire always just out of your reach. It is to always see your condition in the light of your neighbor's condition. It is never to be happy no matter what you have, and never find peace no matter what you pursue. That's discontent. Contentment, on the other hand, is the exact opposite. It is to be satisfied at all times. It is to feel satiated whether you are drinking or thirsting, whether you are eating or starving. It is to be thankful with what you hold. It is to always see your condition in the light of God's provision. It is an untouchable kind of cheerfulness. It is to be happy no matter what you have or don't have. To possess peace whether your pursuits are successful or have failed. There are therefore three elements of contentment and discontent, two of which are the same for both, and one which differs between the two. Both discontent and contentment are internal and habitual realities. They are internal, meaning they are matters of the heart, and they cannot be dealt with by external changes or acquisitions. This we'll see is crucial because it means whether you are content or discontent depends on something inside of you and actually has nothing to do with what is outside of you. These are both also habitual, meaning they are constant conditions that do not change as your circumstances change the content are always content the discontent are always discontent the content will be content with a little or with much the discontent will be discontent with a little or with much As Sinclair Ferguson once said, if you are not content with much, you will not be content with little. But if you cannot be content with a little, what makes you think you would be content with much? So discontent is habitual, as is contentment. This is why Paul says to the Philippians... I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. You hear the constancy of Paul. His contentment is habitual. It is not circumstantial. It is a fixed star in the constellation of his heart, not one that twinkles and flickers out, which further proves that contentment and discontent are the result of internal conditions, not external situations. Paul's words, however, also reveal the Third and differing element between contentment and discontent. For contentment is a supernatural lesson, while discontent is a natural instinct. See, no one ever needs to teach their children how to be discontent. We homeschool our children. The first lesson was never, here's how you are dissatisfied with what you have. We just do that. It's like breathing. No one tells the baby, start breathing. They just start doing it. But that's not the the case with contentment. For you heard Paul in Philippians say, I have learned. Didn't come naturally. He had to learn contentment, and it was a hard and supernatural lesson. And this is important, too, because it reminds us that good things are always hard to come by. Contentment is difficult, it is perhaps the most challenging course you will take and curriculum you will ever have to learn now do you doubt that this is a hard lesson well i would simply remind you that even many of the angels in heaven failed to learn this lesson for jude tells us that many angels were not content with their god-given position of authority and proper dwelling and so they were cast down in chains. Then we know that our first parents, when they were free from sinful corruption, were not content to be made in God's image, but they wanted to be God. Do you think you are a better student than the angels in their glory and Adam and Eve in their innocence? Contentment is a supernatural and hard lesson. True contentment is therefore rightly called divine contentment because it is a gift of God, and it's why we often find it associated with godliness in the Bible. So while the natural man can experience temporary delights in the midst of his discontent, he cannot truly be content. To be content is to be godly, and godliness is the fruit of grace. A contented heart is a gracious heart. So as Thomas Watson says, until we have learned contentment, we have not really learned to be a Christian. And I would say until we have learned to be a Christian, we can't learn contentment. These are the natures of contentment and discontent. But why should we be pursuing one and killing the other? Why does this matter? Well, I could simply appeal to you by the very command of God. That ought to be enough for us. You read in verse 5, Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. It's one and the same Command just stated from two sides. So negatively, it says, keep your life free from the love of money. And money here is standing for all kinds of earthly possessions. Jesus commanded the same, observing that you cannot possibly serve two masters. You cannot love God and money, with money again referring to all kinds of earthly possessions. And you will only serve the God that you love, which is why the author says, "Keep your life free from the love of money. The emphasis on love again reinforces this is an internal command. it is a command for the heart. But then the author states the exact same thing positively: be content with what you have." And this goes beyond just material possessions. Be content with whatever you have. This encompasses your entire earthly existence. So be content with the intellect that God has given you, the abilities he has given you, the finances, the job, the relationships, the achievements, the recognition, or lack thereof. Be content with what you have in every sphere and dynamic of life. That's the command, which is why I'm not just talking about money. Yet I recognize that appealing to a divine command alone does not often move our soul because we are naturally very rebellious. And parents, as you know, just telling your kids, do it, I I said do it, that doesn't often produce obedience. So, thankfully, God in His Word gives us many motivations for obeying His commands, showing us that His good commands are always for our good. So, even though I could offer many motivations, I simply want to appeal to you this morning that contentment is a very happy condition, and discontent is a very miserable condition. For even though we do not naturally love God, we do naturally love ourselves, and we like to avoid misery and pursue happiness. And so I am, this morning, just going to describe this misery and happiness. I'm not going to try and explain these conditions, because I don't think I need to explain it. You you know that discontent is miserable. And you know that contentment is excellent. It is happy. And so I just want to describe it again with various images and metaphors to just help you again feel what you already know. So let's compare the two. Well, life as... Ecclesiastes and James tells us it is a vapor. It is short. It is here today and gone tomorrow. But discontent shortens this already short life because it wastes every today by pining after every tomorrow. Contentment, on the other hand, is eternal life every day. It fills today with peace and tomorrow with hope. A heart full of discontent is like a body full of dislocated bones. Every movement is painful. Contentment, though, is a body well aligned. Movement is just free and fluid. Discontent is like a soul out of tune. No matter what song you play, the notes sound sour. Contentment is a soul in tune. So no matter what you play, the notes are sweet. The discontent are like King Ahab who had a kingdom but could not sleep knowing that Naboth had a vineyard he didn't have. Contentment is like King David who could sleep peacefully even when surrounded by enemies. The discontent cannot enjoy what they have and so they never find joy in whatever they gain. But the content have joy in everything they have and cannot lose joy no matter what they lose. The discontent are like Jonah, who pleads to die because God took away his gourd. It is like Israel begging for earthly quail, even though God had given them heavenly bread. But the content are like Job, who blesses God even when God takes all of his children. They are like Jesus, who asks for nothing but his daily bread. Discontent will corrode your comfort and swell your grief, but contentment will enlarge God's grace and buoy your soul up to receive even more comfort no matter how, how, how high your sorrows swell. Discontent can never be healed because it deceives you to mistrust The great physician, it calls all of his cures poisons. Discontent, therefore, will keep the heart from healing because it will keep you from God's holy medicine that would bring you relief. But contentment is an intelligent disposition that recognizes the wisdom and goodness of the physician, and so it welcomes everything he prescribes. Discontent is a danger because it is a sin that invites other sins to come feast at its banquet of misery. It is like the demon that finds the house empty and clean and so invites seven spirits more evil than itself to come and enter. It is an open highway to temptation because the devil loves to fish in the troubled waters of discontent. It is a breach in the fortress. It is a tunnel for the enemy to enter in and storm the soul. But contentment is safety from sin and temptation because no suffering can overpower it. It's like antibodies seeking and killing envy, bitterness, self pity, impatience, and despair. Contentment is a load bearing wall that keeps the ceiling upright. It is a shield that absorbs every blow from the enemy. It is a gracious host that welcomes God's varied grace to sit and rest in its home. Discontent will find a curse in every blessing and loss in every gain. Contentment will find blessing even in curse and gain even in loss. Discontent will always mistranslate God's providence, saying like the Israelites, after God freed them from Egypt, God brought us here to die. But the contented soul is a wise interpreter, always advocating for God against unbelief and impatience. It knows that God has freed us to save us. So while discontent always will interpret God's works in the worst possible way and turn them into accusations, contentment will always take God's works in the best light and turn them into praise. Discontent will add weight to every burden. Contentment will give strength to the bearer. Discontent will make every man unreasonable, every sorrow unbearable. It will prolong trouble even after relief has come, but contentment will produce patience in trouble as you wait for relief. Do you see It is not actually trouble that troubles your soul. It is discontent that troubles your soul. It's not the water outside the boat that's going to sink you. It's the water that gets inside the boat that will weigh you down into miserable depths. You think you are discontent because you want, but you want Because you are discontent. So no matter how clear the sky and still the wind, the sea of your soul will remain restless and discontent. To be discontent is to live with a devil in your soul that will make it a little hell. It is to have death in life. But contentment is just floating on a still lake. The waters will gently flow, whether it's light or dark, whether it's a storm or a calm day. No, how, no matter how many stones are dropped into the water, the ripples will soon settle back into place. Contentment is like having a perpetual Sabbath in your soul, because it is to have God dwelling there. So while discontent will deform you into a devil, contentment will conform you to Christ. It is life even in the face of death. It is heaven living in your heart while you are waiting for your heart to live in heaven. Isn't that how you want to live each day? Truly, there is no happier condition in all the world than to live with divine contentment. Contentment in the heart is far better than money in the bank, food on the table, or furniture in the home. So how do you possess a contented heart? Not by trusting in earthly possessions, but only by trusting in a heavenly promise. And what is that promise? Well, we have it in our text. It says, keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have for, or here's the reason. Here's why this is possible. For he, that is God, has said, I will never leave you or forsake you. See, this is hope for every man. See, every man cannot have all earthly possessions. So if that's what you're hoping for, there's a good chance you're never going to find contentment. But though every man cannot be rich in possessions, he can be rich in promise. As Jesus said, one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. No, it consists in the abundance of grace that is found in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we see again that the key to contentment is what the author has been holding out to us throughout this letter, which is the promise of God's eternal presence. So if you are to keep your life Free from the love of money, you must be filling your heart with the love of God. Because if God is not your delight, you will never be content. Why? Because God's promise to you is not, you will always have whatever you want. His promise is, you will always have me. The bucket of contentment is drawn up from a well that is tethered to a promise. And the promise is not that you will always gain and never lose earthly possessions. It is that you will never lose your Lord. This was God's promise to Jacob. He said, behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go. For I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. This is also God's promise to Joshua. Just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. This is God's promise to every single one of his children. And there is no greater possession that you could have. For Just think for a moment who God is. He is the Lord of hosts. He is the Alpha and the Omega. He is the beginning and the end. He is the King of kings. He is the Lord of lords. He is the creator of all things. He is the sustainer of all things. He is the redeemer of all things. He is the father of lights and the giver of every good gift. He is truth. He is faithfulness. He is the all-wise and all-loving God. He is the God, it says, of all comfort and all grace. Heaven is his throne. Earth is his footstool. He is justice and mercy. Do you not see that to have God is to have everything? What Comfort would you have every day if you just spent just a little time, even just thinking of the names of God or His character? To know you have Him would then lead you to confidently say, with the psalmist who's quoted in verse 6, The Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? So here are two helps. From knowing that the Lord is your helper, that he will never leave you, which I hope will help you be able to reason against your unreasonable discontent. Because discontent likes to make excuses for itself and justify its own existence. It disguises itself in arguments that suggest Discontent isn't a sin. It is a right and appropriate response to bad circumstances. But the truth is you never, ever have a right to be discontent. Discontent is always sin against God. So when you think I have a right to be discontent, Because I have lost a child. I have lost a spouse or family member. I've lost financial security. My children or a spouse are a grief and burden to me. My friends have betrayed me. I've suffered greatly, the wicked prosper way more than I do, or any other number of reasons you think you have a right to be discontent. I want you to remember these two things in light of God's promise. The first is to remember that it is God who has put you in whatever earthly condition you are in. And he has done so according to his perfect wisdom, knowledge, and love. He loves you. He knows what is best for you. So the first question we often ask is, why am I here? But the first question we need to ask ourselves is, who has put me here? And the answer is always, your heavenly Father has put you there. Whether the place is high or low, you are not there because of luck or fortune or blind fate. You are there because God's wise and loving providence deemed it best. And it is always better to be where God deems best than to be where you deem best. So when you are discontent, you are murmuring against God's providence. And as Watson says, murmuring is the devil's music. You're not challenging just God's authority. You are challenging his wisdom, his knowledge, his love. To strain against God's bonds is an attempt to free yourself from the sphere of God's providence. It is to resist his wisdom, and love. And that is not only futile, because who can overthrow God? It is foolish, because why would you try to leave the sphere of God's love? So when you feel discontent, remind yourself who put you in your current position. It is the one who knows what is best for you and who works all things for your best. The fact that you are not experiencing the same condition as someone else, as we've talked about before in Hebrews, is not a matter of God loves somebody more. It is simply evidence that God knows his children, and his children are not all the same. I'm a father of four kids. And yes, there are certain similarities among my children. There are certain necessities that they all need, but my kids are not the same. What helps one might hurt the other. What humbles one might puff up the other. So I can't treat them all in the exact same way. And in this way, God will give you, what is good for you, and he will withhold what is not good for you. And there is a difference between good in itself and good for you, it's not the same. So, Watson says, The wise God has ordered our condition. If he sees that it is better for us to abound, we shall abound, and if he sees that it is better for us to want, We shall want. Be content to be at God's disposal. God sees in his infinite wisdom that the same condition is not convenient for all. That which is good for one may be bad for another. One season of weather will not serve all men's occasions. One needs sunshine, another rain. find that image very helpful for me. Somebody who's... Maybe he has seasonal affective disorder. They're sad. They need sunshine. The farmer needs the rain. If we just do the same for everybody, our various needs will not be met. So you may experience more adversity than someone else because God has fit you for more adversity and he will give you more blessing out of it. God has not given us all the same physical strength. He has not given us all the same spiritual strength. So some are built to bear heavier burdens than others and gain more blessings from them. And the same is true with prosperity. He may guard you from certain prosperities because they would do you more harm than good. They will tempt you toward more sin than they would serve your sanctification. So I believe God's goodness to us is equally evidenced not only in the good that he gives to us, but some of the goods that he withholds from us. Because you don't know what goods would be a snare to you. You don't know what worldly gains might cause you to lose your soul. But God knows, and that's why he works accordingly. Now, does all of that mean you can never feel sad and you can never cry out to God in your adversity? Does it mean that you just need to be content with sin and sinful situations? Does it mean that you cannot desire and ask for earthly blessings? No, it it doesn't mean any of that. Contentment doesn't mean you, you don't feel sorrow or suffering it's not being stoic or numb it doesn't mean you you can never ask for good things god tells us to ask him for good things it doesn't mean you should ever be content with sin it doesn't mean there might be very bad situations that the lord is going to bring you out of it simply means that you trust God's answers in God's timing as you cry out to him and ask him for things. It's right to desire. It's wrong to demand. So there is a difference between a holy cry to God and a discontented complaint against God. So contentment will still fear, feel sorrow and longing. But it will maintain joy and peace in the midst of it, and as it cries out and asks, it will always end with, but not my will, yours be done. I would simply add to this, that no matter what condition you are suffering and feel you have a right to be discontent with, it is important to remember that your sins are always greater than your suffering. And yet in Christ, you are never suffering as much as your sins deserve. And let this guard you from discontent because in loss, there's only suffering in discontent. There is only sin And a thousand sufferings are better than one sin. So mourn, but do not murmur. Be humble, not hostile. Pray, but don't pout. Cry out in righteous anger, in righteous anguish, but not unrighteous anger. You are free to ask God questions. You're never free to question God. Depend on him, but do not be discontent. And second and finally, remember that whatever earthly condition God has placed you in, he has always promised to be with you in that condition. So after asking, who has placed me here, ask, who is with me here? Because that matters far more than where you are. And if God is with you, you are safe. If you have God, it means you have everything that you need. So focus on what you have and can never lose, For what you have and cannot lose is far better than anything else you could gain, and which will certainly be lost. This promise of God is ultimately fulfilled in Christ. For Jesus is the yes and amen to all of God's promises. And so if God has given you his son, he can never possibly give you more than he's already given you. And no matter what he may take from you, it will never compare to what you have in Christ. Again, Watson asks, what need does he have to complain of losses who has Christ? Christ is his Father's brightness, his fullness, and his delight. Is there enough in Christ to delight the heart of God? And is there not enough in him to ravish us with holy delight?" See, this is what Asaph, the psalmist, had to learn when he began to envy all of the blessings of the wicked that he saw. But through worship, he finally came to realize, Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart will fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever you see earthly blessings are not the only nor are they the best things the prosperity of the wicked should actually lead you to pity more than envy because earthly blessings are the most of heaven they will ever know they have received their reward jesus says Would you really envy a man a gourmet meal that he's eating right before his execution? And also remember that God's grace is far greater than his gifts. You ought to prefer grace without gifts than gifts without grace. For while earthly pleasure is the most of heaven that the wicked will ever know, your earthly pains, Christian, are the most of hell you will ever have to know. So desire God's grace, which is found in Jesus. In giving you Jesus, God has given you his very heart. You have your portion and he is an inexhaustible, indescribable good. The light of all earthly pleasures compared to the light of Christ is like the light of the stars compared to the light of the sun. Yes, starlight is good. It's beautiful. But who complains when they're standing in sunlight I've lost the light of the stars. It's not the same. You cannot have starlight and sunlight at the same time. One must give way to the other. So sometimes God will withhold good things from us to give us something better. And so I hope you see again, just as we saw when dealing with the fight for purity, that the fight of faith here is not predominantly a fight against what is bad. Yes, we are to fight against the pleasures of sin, but we most effectively do that by fighting for a greater pleasure. So the fight of faith is not so much a fight against what is bad as it is a fight for what is better. Hasn't that been the argument throughout Hebrews? As he warns them, he doesn't keep trying to persuade them, arguing everything is bad, bad, bad. He tries to persuade them, arguing there is something better, better, better. And that better is Jesus Christ. You know, those of you who know me, that I I love to take time with each of my kids, reading through the Chronicles of Narnia. I'm now doing that with my third child, Talitha. We just finished The uh, Voyage of the Dawn Treader. And I love at the end of that book, when Lucy is told that she will never be able to come back to narnia and she is absolutely devastated but as she's speaking to aslan she says i i'm not sad because i'm never going to see narnia again i'm sad because i'm never going to see you again aslan comforts her saying oh but but you will know me in your world just by a different name and the good news is hebrews is that we know the real athlete and his name is jesus and you get to have him the song of contentment therefore is a song of praise in every circumstance because it is a song of something better It's the song of the psalmist who sings, for a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. It's the song of Habakkuk as he sings, though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit beyond the vines. The produce of the olive fail and the fields yield no food. The flock be cut off from the fold and there be no herd in the stall. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. You see, the psalmist and Habakkuk had contentment even in trouble because they had a promise. And they had the same promise that you and I had. For the Lord says to all of his people, I will never leave you or forsake you. So are you in trouble? Well, remember that it is your wise, loving and heavenly father who has placed you there. And remember that he has promised to be with you there. So even in your trouble, you may confidently say, the Lord is my help. I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we know that we, no matter how much we argue and reason with ourselves, will never find that contentment unless you create it by the power of your Holy Spirit. So I ask now that you would take. Your word, and you would apply it to each and every one of us as we needed to hear that. Would you bring comfort and grace to those who are miserable, who are suffering in ways the rest of us don't even know? Would you remind them of your promise right now? Would they hear your voice assuring them once again, I will never leave you, nor forsake you. And would you open their eyes to behold the light of the glory of Christ, that as they stand in his light, they would know that they have gained everything. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.